Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is brought to you by ROI Online. ROI Online offers content marketing, email marketing, social media marketing, web and mobile design, and more for businesses of all sizes. As your business development partner and marketing agency, they help you tell your story. Learn more at ROIOnline.com. Today's guest is Ray Wilson, and I think his story is a particularly interesting one. To start, Ray is a high school dropout who ended up founding a local technology company called Katmandu, which at its peak had multiple locations in the panhandle. But as he talks about in this episode, that success in the business world didn't end up bringing him the personal fulfillment he was hoping for. Now, Ray is also a very talented local singer-songwriter, and today he owns and operates High Fidelity Records, which is a funky little vinyl store in the Nat on 6th Street. And the story about how that happened is equally compelling. Ray is a friend of mine, and he's, he's just one of the most authentic, genuine guys I know. And I think you'll enjoy how transparent he is in telling his story. Here's Ray Wilson. Ray Wilson, thank you for being on Hey Amarillo. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. So I know that your story has a lot of different stops and starts and destinations <laughs> and places you've ended up, including what you're doing now. So I think the best way to, to talk about it is to go back to the beginning. The beginning. So, um, well, maybe not necessarily all the way to the beginning, but <laughs> so there tell was... me... <laughs> Tell me how you ended up in Amarillo and in, in this area. Okay, great. Yeah. So my mom uh, was a nurse um, and I, we were living uh, with a family uh, in New Mexico and then they moved to Claremore, Oklahoma from there. And my mom left me with them, a great, amazing family, and and came to Amarillo to, and started working for Northwest Texas Hospital, the old Northwest Texas Hospital. And she was here for, for probably about a year before she kind of came and got me and moved me down here. So uh, that was when really my first experience with Amarillo. Of course, we had traveled through here a couple of times, but uh, as far as living here, moving here, that's what did it, uh, Northwest Texas Hospital and my mom. And then uh, about what age were you when you ended up in this area? We, I was eight going on nine okay. when we first uh, moved here. So so still pretty young. Went to Glenwood Elementary School. That was my first Amarillo school. And then after graduation, did you have a sense that you were going to take off, go someplace else? or? Well, I'd hoped. <laughs> um, I didn't graduate. I'm actually a high school dropout. But um, the goal, of course, was to get away from Amarillo as fast as possible uh, this area because I've actually lived uh, out towards the uh, canyon and I've lived in uh, the city of Panhandle before so I really wanted to get away I really wanted to experience um, and honestly I think everybody experiences this I got pulled right back um, you know it, it, it's fun and it's neat to live uh, I lived in uh, North Richland Hills which isn't uh, too far out of the DFW or it's in the DFW area and uh, I really liked it, and I liked the opportunities that were there, and I liked uh, the excitement and the hustle and bustle, but it was really strange just not driving down the street and having someone wave at you or honk at you. You know, Even in Amarillo, I still experience that today, even though I'm that driver that doesn't see those people, but <laughs> they tell me later, I was waving like crazy at you, man. So it's just nice to have 
that the people here are amazing. So I think that's always the pull back to this area. When you came back to this area, um, how old were you? Um, I think I was 20 years old um, and I was married at the time and I was doing sales down uh, in the DFW area and uh, it just didn't, it didn't pan out. I was actually, I rose, uh, so I was 19 and I rose to, I think the top 12 salesmen in the nation for that company. Um, what were you selling? But, <laughs> um, they were photography packages. So, uh, we would set up in a hotel room and, uh, before that we would have gone down to the local courthouse and pulled all of the marriage license records and filled out postcards to these newlyweds to their address uh, and said, Hey, come to, uh, this event and, uh, you could win this, you could win a 35 million, uh, 35 uh, millimeter camera, uh, film for life, this, that, or the other. And so we'd get in there and, uh, we would basically sell this photography package where you sent in your photos and we would blow them up to, you know, giant, you know, photographs that you can hang on your wall right. or painting type things, or we'd put your face on the cover of a magazine, like basically all the stuff that we do now just with Photoshop, but back then it was magic, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I sold. And, um, and I sold a lot of it, but it, uh, it didn't really work out, uh, as most commission type jobs like that, uh, tend to, tend to not work out, uh, at least for me anyway. So, uh, kind of came back to Amarillo with my tail between my legs. And what did you do once you got back here? Um, I, I think I worked in a lot of restaurants, odd jobs, different things like that. Uh, and, oh, and I did some sales. I did some insurance sales. Um, and finally, I uh, got what I considered my first really good job, <laughs> and it was uh, delivering pizzas. And uh, I made a killing in delivering pizzas. I was I thought I was like Rockefeller or something. I'd come home with cash tips, and I'd just unload my pockets, you know, on the bed, and there'd be a pile of money. And I was just like, man, this is going to be the life for me. So I, I literally started out as a delivery driver and worked my way up to um, the uh, area supervisor, which was just below the gentleman that owned the franchise here uh, for Domino's Pizza. Um, so I had I had three stores in the Amarillo City Limits uh, that I ran, and then we opened the one in Canyon. We were the first ones to go to Canyon uh, with a Domino's Pizza. So I uh, did that for almost a decade. And I learned a lot during that time, um, a lot about the service industry and, you know, again, a high school dropout, um, very little at that time, no college. I don't even think I had my GED for the majority of the time. Um, but I learned a lot and then left that job. And I think I went back into sales for a time and eventually ended up working for uh, a computer company here in town. Yeah, I was going to say there's there's photography and there's pizza, and I haven't mm-hmm. heard anything yet yeah, about yeah, IT work yeah. or well, technology. I mean, there wasn't technology back then. You know, I mean, um, when I was working at the Domino's Pizzas, when we switched from handwritten tickets to a computerized system, I mean, I had already been there probably seven or eight years. So uh, that was that was kind of my first real experience with computers as the area supervisor i was kind of the macgyver i was the one that got the call at midnight if one of the locations their their server went down or one of their main stations where they made the uh, the orders went down or something and i'd get up there and contact the uh, support company and a lot of times 
part of that was me literally opening the computers up, you know, and, and talking to the support guy. And after doing that for a couple of years, I kind of developed an idea of, you know, well, I, th I think I know what probably what's wrong. I don't even have to call the support. I just go in there and, and kind of take care of it. So that was kind of really how I got involved with, uh, computers and had you um, done anything with computers like as a kid with like really early yeah you know, i had a commodore 64 that was my first computer. pretty early yeah and um and then i had a tandy in the early mid 90s somewhere in there uh, that i bought from radio shack uh with windows 3.1 on it um and AOL. i had an ibm pc junior back in the day you win early 80s wow yeah I think. yeah that's very cool that my nerd credentials right <laughs> So um, that's kind of how I got into the whole computer thing. And, of course, every job that I would go to after that, as soon as they knew that I even could open up the side of a computer or whatever, they were like, well, now you're in charge of our computers. Yeah. So I, I did go to Emerald College for a little while, um, pursuing a CIS degree. And I was working for a computer company here in town. Started off as um, sort of their... Uh, retail sales guy. In other words, when someone would walk in and they wanted a sound card or they wanted a, a part or whatever, um, I would sell that to them. And what was that company? Uh, Unique Solutions of Amarillo, okay. USA Inc. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually eventually uh, put me in charge of the uh, their computer networking department as the service coordinator was my position there. And uh, I was kind of the guy that answered the service calls and scheduled the technicians and was kind of the, the go-between between the clients and the technicians, um, kind of translating geek speak into human speak and just trying to get everybody focused. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of the nerdier computer nerds, they're very black and white, um, ones and zeros. And so I kind of tried to inject a bit of humanity into that situation to uh, help the customers feel like they um, were dealing with people and not just robots. So um, so I did that for a while, and then my wife's uncle out of Dumas, Texas, hired me there uh, to help him with his bookkeeping and computers. And um, then Unique Solutions went out of business, and a couple, two or three of the customers, the business customers, contacted me and said, you know, what are we going to do? We basically lost our provider. And I said, you know... I, I'm not sure there's really anyone out there right now that I fully would just go, hey, yeah, call this place or call that place. I could probably help you transition. So I thought I'll make a little bit of money on the side. I'll help these companies that I'd, I'd built a relationship with as the service coordinator, you know, and helping them over the years. Um, and Wait, what years were those? Oh, gosh. So we're talking like late 90s. It is late 90s and early 2000s. So you have businesses that the Internet has been around long enough that most businesses are thinking, OK, this is something we've got to connect to. We've got to network our computers. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's enough that they know they need to do something, but still pretty early to where they don't know what they're doing. Sure. And, you know, and it was still, and it still is, I mean, a lot of it's kind of the wild west, you know, once you connect to the internet, I mean, it, anything goes at that point, you know, I mean, um, viruses were, uh, definitely a thing and spyware was kind of a new thing. And then we had what we count, what we, uh, coined as malware was starting to be prevalent and, um, and everybody was, uh, really terrified actually, especially if you're in business, you know, and you, you connect 
the heart of your organization, this this device that uh, holds all of your customers' information and all of your data and everything that's critical to your business, even if you're a nonprofit. Uh, I did some work for, um, as a matter of fact, uh, the High Plains Food Bank was the very first customer uh, that I had and all the way up until here very recently. And I, I think that they're still a customer of Katmandu uh, or it's now Andrews. We can talk about that in a minute. But so I kept them uh, through for, for many years, about 15 years. Um, but it was scary because they they were, as we all are, uh, susceptible to a lot of scary things that are going on out there. And it just evolves every year. Every year there's a new threat and a new way of dangers coming into a network or getting involved into, you know, places in your business that you just don't want malicious type code running rampant. So um, that's a lot of what I did over the years. So let's talk about that that transition. You you began to have a few, I guess, sort of freelance customers uh, while mm-hmm. you were working in Dumas. Mm-hmm. And then talk to me about getting to the point where you thought, okay, I'm just going to open up my own business and this will be my job. Well, I was traveling back and forth from Amarillo to Dumas and it was, it was kind of a hard deal anyway. I'm not a morning person. So arriving at work at 8 a.m. in Dumas, Texas requires, well, it requires a morning person. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, even, uh, the, my boss, uh, my wife's uncle, amazing human being. Um, I had a, a car, a company car that got me back and forth and, and gasoline and everything like that. But it was literally just the time that I would lose um, going there and coming back. And as things started to progress, I, I, there were several times where I would be on my way to Dumas to go to work and I'd get a call. I'd get a call from the food bank or I'd get a call from another business customer and the server is not coming up this morning at all. And I'd turn around, you know, right around the river or something or even past the river and call my boss and go, hey, sorry. And he was super supportive. I mean, everything was on the table. I right. wasn't doing anything behind uh, his back. But uh, as that started to pull me further and further away, I felt like I was neglecting my job there. And and that there was security there because he was paying me an hourly rate. And I hated leaving that security and leaving that free car and free gas and free tires and free oil changes mm-hmm. and all of those things that I had to hope that I was going to do well with the uh, computer business. And the first year, the first year that uh, I was solely making Catmandy, I'll never forget, I made 13000 had a mortgage and had kids and had... That doesn't go very far, even in Amarillo. <sighs> I mean, it was tough. I mean, there, there's... Uh, if it wasn't for my mother-in-law, my wife being amazingly frugal and, you know, incredibly well budgeted and, and just absolute miracles, we wouldn't have made it through that first year. So it was really, it was really scary. It was really tough. And I hadn't been full. I, well, I can do a lot of things on my own and I could probably do a lot of things if it was just myself and my wife, because she's incredibly supportive and strong. But when we started having children, that's when the pressure was on. I mean, I couldn't make $13,000 a year and have kids. How am I going to even take them to the pediatrician if they catch yeah. something? I mean, at that, I mean, no health care, no, no possibility of, and, and every little, every little expense, expense felt like a disaster. And I'm sure you know what I mean. It's just like, oh my gosh, you know, I remember one time having some people over and like, this is a true story. We had a light bulb in the, in the living room 
a light bulb. And it sounds silly, but there was no hope for going and buying light bulbs from wow. the living room. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think that that same month I had, we had a, a Texaco credit card. It was the only credit card that we really had or wanted to have. But I went to uh, Toot and Totem to get diapers and there was another baby item and it was declined. <laughs> you know, it was like I can't even buy something with my Texaco gas card. Um, so, I mean, it was really, really rough. But again, um, my wife was super supportive and we just we made it through. And the next year it was you know, it wasn't eight, it wasn't 13, it was 18. And then it was 28. And then, you know, things started kind of breaking loose and, uh, started growing Katmandu. And I just put everything that I had into it in those first few years. Um, it started there in my garage with a little, I put a little countertop in there where I would do, uh, home people's PCs and virus cleanups. And then I would, I would try to get them done the very next day. So if, if I would come to someone's home, because I didn't want them to bring their computer to my place, I would go pick it up at their house and bring it in. You know, if it was this time of day and I brought it back to the garage and started working on it, I'd work on it till four o'clock in the morning if that's what it wow. took, because I wanted to get it back to them that next day in case I had about five or six business customers. If they were to call and they were to have an emergency and I would to spend a day there and half a day somewhere else, then I, I felt like that that home user, I didn't want them to feel like they were on the back burner. I didn't want them to call me going, you've had my computer for five days. Because right. when your computer's on? gone for a lot of people, that, that's like having your car in the shop. It, it's it like having you your car wall. in the shop. Exactly. So I would, I would, I would get it done the next morning, no matter what it took. And my wife would, she'd come out there in the garage and it was always either freezing cold or it was blistering hot out there. No matter what I tried, no matter what device I tried to rig up, um, I never could get that garage to where it was even comfortable, um, except just a you know the spring and fall for a, a month. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but and you you knew computers, you knew customer service, you know, but probably didn't know a lot about running a business or managing no. employees or growing anything like that. Well, I did manage employees at Domino's for many years. So I knew, I knew how to hire, I knew how to fire, I knew how to, um, I knew all the basics, the, the HR stuff, what paperwork I needed to have on file, but running a business on my own, the ins and outs, the, the, the little nuances, um, no, not even a clue. So when I started hiring employees, I knew that I needed to have folders and I knew that it had to have certain information in it. And I knew that we had to have a absolutely amazing customer service. You're right. I think that that's what made Catman do for years. Is I just wanted to treat people the way that I wanted to be treated. You know, I, I wanted, if someone was going to spend even a dollar with me, I wanted them to feel like they got a dollar and maybe some change in an experience that they had with my organization. And at the height of, of Kathmandu, I mean, talk to me about what you're managing in terms of clients, um, employees, and that sort of stuff. So at the, I think at our peak, um, I would say we had won um, just almost every award that, that you could win in this area. We had won the uh, Better Business Bureau uh, Marketplace uh, Ethics yeah, the Marketplace Award yeah, for Ethics. Uh, yes, the Better Business Bureau. Uh, and then we had won uh, Top Small Business from the Amarillo Chamber of Commerce. And um, I had won a, a Top 40 Under 40 uh, Award 
and we had three locations at that time. We had Amarillo Canyon and Dumas, Texas. And so um, my day, my day was completely different every single day. And actually every month was different. If we lost a key employee at one of those locations, then that's kind of where I lived for a while. And I actually found myself ironically driving back and forth to Dumas, <laughs> being there at eight o'clock in the morning anyway, mm-hmm. um, for, for several different stints, you know, and it always seemed like we'd, we'd staff someone in one location and it would run well for a little while, but another location we'd lose a key employee and I'd have to go in there and manage that place, hire, train, get everybody running and rinse and repeat. So, yeah. uh, at the height of it, that's really what I was doing. I was spending, many, many hours in three different cities, sometimes in the same day. And I used to, you know, if I ever got upset with my crew or I would get frustrated, you know, if if one of the locations wasn't clean enough or they weren't taking care of the other things other than just fixing computers, you know, I'd, and, and I could say it in all honesty, I'm the only one in the company that has literally in the same day cleaned toilets in three different cities. So right. if I can do that, I think, you can clean up this little work area right here, you know, and, and make it look nice for when customers walk in. So I was doing what I thought I was the right thing to get the company going. And I think I was, but I think it would have taken probably another 12 years of me doing that to really reach what my hopes and dreams were for Kathmandu, which was to continue to open up locations. Right. And I just, you know, honestly, I changed what I believed my measurement of success was. Because at that time, my measurement of success was kind of the traditional, what I think we're all told, you you know, you've got to have this size of a house with the white picket fence and the three cars, and there's got to be a three car garage to fit them in and 2.5 children. And you have to be making X amount of money so that you can wear these kind of clothes. So you can do these sorts of things. So you can look this way and all of this. And I kind of dawned on me, I was like, but I had my middle daughter for the first three years of her life. I was hardly even involved. I hardly changed a diaper on that little girl. And it dawned on me that I was kind of stuck in this sort of rat race type of a scenario. And it was only going to require more of that for me to be a quote unquote successful entrepreneur. And I really started Katmandu because I wanted something that I didn't report to every day. Right. I didn't want it to be Ray's computer store, Wilson Electronics. And I didn't want to have to be the guy that walked in the door every single day, opened the register, turned on the lights, and I would have stints where that would happen. There were times where I could go and work out and go to a gym and then go to my kids' thing that they have at school because elementary schools want you there every single day. There's something happening in that school every single day. And I didn't want my kid to be the one that was... Because I've seen that. I've gone to the donuts for dads mm-hmm. and I've sat there and I've looked down the row and there's six kids. They're eating a donut, but dad isn't there for right. whatever reason. I mean, the poor guy probably was up at four o'clock in the morning. He's go, at Pantex. He's you know? at Pantex or whatever. Um, but I always felt bad. And I was like, you know what? What a great thing that I'm able to go and do this and then go do that. And my wife and I had this like really cool thing where on Thursdays we would go grocery shopping during the day while the kids were in school. So we were spending time together and connecting. Um, but then all, there was always something. Something would go awry somewhere and it would pull me out of that and back into that hole back in Dumas, Texas at 8 a.m. or yeah. whatever. You know what I mean? 
So it looked really good from the outside, but it wasn't really feeling good on the inside. And so I started kind of changing my mindset on that. And I started really thinking about what my exit strategy would be uh, with Kathmandu and what I would do next. And in 2009 is when I really started picking up the guitar again. It was actually the bass guitar and trying to put some bands together um, because that's that's one of the things that I'd missed most of my life. I found myself showing people photographs. Oh, this was me back in my band days in the 90s. And I was like, wait a minute, why am I spending all this time in the past? Why am I not creating a future for myself? Why am I not playing music right now? And so, and and I was horrible at it, but I did it anyway. I just, I picked up my bass guitar and I started singing and I started playing the bass and I started finding people that would play music along with me. And, and we made a couple of horrible albums in my garage, I played a lot of shows, believe it or not, as bad as we were, we played, uh, I bet the cattle call book booked us probably at least six times every summer for two or three years there, but I was enjoying it. I really was. And I was enjoying, that was another one of those times where I was able to be, to, to work less at Kathmandu and work more towards my dream. And so I was kind of thinking that that was going to be the the way that I was going to go. I was going to have a team of people that were going to take over Kathmandu and they were going to run it. Um, I'd draw a salary and then I'd go and pursue my music and really start working on it. And so that was probably the height of Kathmandu's success. Okay. And then at what point did, did that plan start to shift into letting go of the business altogether? Well, um, gentleman by the name of Tyler Andrews emailed me and he said, you know, we're competitors, but what if we just sat down and figured out a way for you to achieve your dreams and for me to achieve my dreams through the company, through both of these companies? And I, well, you know, especially if you're going to buy lunch, I'll, I'll go sit down with you. So we sat down and we, we probably met for two months um, before we even were sure of kind of what we were going to try to accomplish. Um, but just talking about the differences and the similarities between the two companies. And that was when, you know, it was like, well, let's, let's merge the two companies together. That idea came about. And, you know, my biggest concern was I didn't want, I didn't want my customers to feel like they had been abandoned. And I didn't want the employees to have to go find another job somewhere else or feel like that, that they had been abandoned. Uh, That was really my main focus. Tyler wanted to, uh, have a bigger company where he could have health insurance. That was something, something that we had that he didn't have for just one example of many and and vice versa. They had a lot of good things going for them that we didn't have. They had a lot more business clients. So we kind of just devised a way to to merge the two companies together. And going into 2017, I mean, I was just thrilled. Um, by the time everything was official and we knew that it was going to happen, we had had several hiccups and and some employees that got really spooked by the change, and we overcame all of those things. And going into 2017, I was like, guys, I'm about to realize my dreams. I'm about to be able to do a little bit of consulting for this new, newly merged together company, but spend my time with my family doing music, still make a living off of the the company that I had created over, it was, you know, I mean, he's going to be 15 years old. It was founded in 2003. And so it seemed like things were going to go really, really well. And, you know, to be honest, it just, I don't think for Tyler and I don't think for myself, it went the way that we wanted it to go. And so we just sat down back in 
October, November of this past year and had a board meeting. And I said, look, it's, it's time for me to step out as an employee of the company. You're not getting what you want. I'm not getting what I want. I'd been working more and more and more and more, um, trying to overcome some obstacles that we thought the merger was going to be like really super smooth. Mm-hmm. We thought we had, cause we did, we spent a lot of time planning, putting things on paper, looking at things from every angle, but a lot of things outside of our control happened. And so I stepped up, um, at their request and worked very diligently at trying to overcome a lot of those obstacles, but it wasn't, it again, it's like driving to do all over again, you know, and I'm not attaining my goals. They're not attaining their goals. So it was, it was the right move. And at the time, you know, I went through all of the five phases of grief. Right. I really did. I mean, I walked out that door for the last time as an employee of the company. I still own a percentage of, of the merged company, but as an employee that received health benefits and uh, an allowance for a vehicle and gasoline again and tires and dental insurance. Oh, and a paycheck. Right. And I walked out the door and I felt, I literally felt naked. I felt like I was after almost 15 years that I was just blowing in the wind. What was I going to do? Um, so it wasn't a feeling of relief. It was, it was a feeling of that came. Okay. It did come the, but there was some uncertainty there at the beginning. Oh, crazy uncertain. I mean, when I reached out to my wife and I was like, I'm jobless for the first time in a very long time, we were both, what does that mean? It's all, it's all, it's all gone. Did you think about going back to Domino's and saying, you know, hey, I, was, I was really good at this. I kept having these nightmares about doing that. <laughs> so maybe subconsciously somewhere, something was like, you know, you could go do this. But uh, a few, several months prior, actually March of last year, we came into a big, an estimated 50,000 vinyl records. And where were those? Those were in a farmhouse north of Sunray, Texas. I mean, when you're at this farmhouse, when you look around, you see nothing. I, I don't even remember there being a, a neighboring house. Dirt road, dirt, 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 and yellow grass, dead grass growing all around it. It was my wife's family and um, her cousins. They do home staging. They're going to sell your house. They try to get it ready and make it look nice. And, and this was a house, a project that they had been asked to get to, ready to sell. They said the basement is full of these vinyl records. And and since about 2009, I had gotten back into collecting vinyl records. If you want them, just come get them, right? How did they end up there? So it seemed like the the gentleman that owned the house was using the entire house as a great big storage building. And it looked to us like he had gone... Um, a lot of the boxes um, has have either the the Denver, Colorado written on them, or they have some pieces of paper in there. Every once in a while, I'll find a receipt from that area. So it seemed like he was going around in that area at some point in time and just going to estate sales and garage sales and any place that he could. And he was just buying lots of vinyl records. If, if he went and someone had a, a giant box sitting out in the driveway, well, he'd just take them all. It was what it looked like. Because some of the boxes still even have five for a dollar written on the side mm-hmm. of the box. So you think, well, that was probably in someone's some kind of sale somewhere. 
And who was he? That you know, him? I don't know. I, I I could probably find out, but I don't know hmm. exactly his information. And he didn't even live in that house, from what I understand. He was just literally storing things there. And they were like, we can't sell the house. We can't get it ready without with these vinyl records in the basement. And, you know, one of these boxes was probably about 80 pounds. And um, it was two little flights of stairs up the basement through a corner around through a front door or out through a garage. And we went and looked at them. And my first thing was like, no way. I mean, this is a huge undertaking. This is a dawn till dusk, hundreds of pounds of items that we're going to be trying to move. What am I going to do with those? That's too much for my collection. Even if I went through them, I couldn't, they wouldn't fit in my garage. And I'd spend my entire life going through them going, oh, well, here's one I can put in my collection you know, 20 boxes later. Um, so we leave and then we talk about it. And at first my wife is like, well, let's sell them. Let's open up a little, a little side business. I don't want to do that. I've got, got this merger thing that's going well, but it's still requiring a lot of my energy. I've got my music that I'm really trying to work on. I'm trying to book shows. Might be working at Domino's and that takes time. Kind of, you know, I didn't see that one coming, but yeah, I might end up delivering pieces again. Who knows? But um, then we'd swap and she'd say, no, we're not going to do that. And I go, you know, I really think we should. I think it'd be great to have this little thing. So uh, sure enough, we, we set a time. We got a, a huge U-Haul truck, drove to Sunray. Um, my oldest son and one of his friends volunteered to help. And it was all day of loading those and they even um called in some uh some ranch hands from around there and they helped us load and we got into right around the lunch hour and realized that it wasn't even going to all fit in that u-haul and the the u-haul was i mean riding really low Mm -hmm. you know in the back um so we had maxed out the u-haul so we decided, well, we'll go into uh, Sunray, or it might have been Cactus that we went into, and we'll have lunch. And we contacted my wife, my mother-in-law, and they started heading for Amarillo with another U-Haul with a trailer. And so we had lunch and met them, loaded them both up, drove back to Amarillo, got here just in time to rent a storage unit, one that was air-conditioned and heated, because that was one of our biggest concerns. And uh, it was, of course, on the third floor of the facility. And so we started hauling records up to the third floor. At the time, we were kind of like, well, we don't know what we're going to do with them or where we're going to put them. And again, my mother-in-law uh, said, well, you know, we, we were looking at places. What if we rented a place out at this business park or whatever? And I'd contact them, and maybe it's because I have long hair and tattoos, but they weren't really interested even in, in really even talking to me. And it was like $900 a month, you know, mm-hmm. and plus utilities and insurance. And I was like, oh, this is, this feels like opening a Kathmandu again. And I, I'm just, I'm not, I don't think I have it in me to do that. So uh, my wife's mom, my mother-in-law was like, well, you know, I've got a little booth up at the Nat um, where I sell antiques. And there's going to be a little booth that's going to open up just down the hall from me on the second floor. What if you just put a few up there just to see what happens, you know, and that you don't have to pay, you just pay your booth rent. Well, that sounded like a pretty good idea. So we open up our first little booth up there, and sure enough, we start selling records. And we're like, well, this is going to be a nice little side income kind of thing. And we'd only go up there maybe on Saturdays just to kind of organize and 
and add more inventory or whatever. But it wasn't like a big, you know, part of our lives at that point. We were making about $400 a month. And the day that I walked out of Kathmandu as an employee, I went to the storage building and I started gathering records. And I thought, you know, if that little booth can do $400 a month, maybe, maybe if I really ramp up my marketing, Mm -hmm. um, really start putting more and more inventory up there, focus on really what I want it to do instead of it being a hobby, turn it into another business. And I also really start ramping up booking for music. Maybe I can supplement my income. So, uh, that's what I did. Um, and we ramped up and we ramped up and, and we organized and cleaned records and stocked records. And I mean, I just, every single day, every single day, just as many records as I could get as many of them as I could go through because the, the records in the storage building are in any various form of either absolute trash because they're broken in half mm-hmm. or warped or or scratched so bad that they're not playable all the way up to some are still sealed and brand new, you know, or at least in, in the original packaging. And so they're worth anything from $0 to, I think I sold one for, uh, or I found one that was worth $250 and I think I ended up selling it for 90 on eBay. But again, that's just one record. And so I just ramped up and started working on it and working on it. And I thought, I'm going to post about it every day. I'm going to post on Instagram and, and Facebook. And I'm going to ask some really close friends. And I, I just, I'm not going to be making money from Kathmandu anymore um, in the form of a paycheck. Um, I, I, might, I might get dividends. I might, I have, I have my shares if those sell. Um, but here's what I need from you guys. I just need you to go like the page. If you know anybody that collects records, share it. And they just rallied around me and people just started responding and sales kept going and sales kept going. So now I've changed into a, a, a vinyl record store owner. Yeah. Um, and I'm really, really happy actually owning a business like Katmandu where you're clientele doesn't really understand what they're purchasing anyway. And most of your clientele, they either are a big business that are, and they have a, they they control a huge chunk of your monthly income or they're related or friends to that same business. And so having that stress constant, I've got to make this happen and make that happen. Oh, and plus payroll and I've got to take care of my employees and, and growth, I've got to have growth. People are always asking me how many people I have on payroll. And that stress finally, and it's been a while now, it's been November-ish, I guess, since everything was kind of finalized. Um, and it's just now starting to leave me. And I'm really enjoying myself. I'm, I'm not making $13,000 a year. I'm not going to make $50,000 this year, but I'm not at thirteen dollars either. Um, and I like my... I like the interaction that I'm having with my customers a lot better. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited about it and I'm really happy. And the pressure that I've been under for 15 years is almost completely melted away. And I'm really happy. And I get to tell people when they say, well, what do you do? I get to say, well, I sell music in some form or fashion, whether it's my music or whether I'm performing it or I'm selling, you know, vintage records. Um, up at my record store. And that makes me really happy. And it makes my family happy that, you know, 
we're not starving and I'm paying the bills and I'm making more than 13,000. So my first year as a vinyl record store owner is already leaps and bounds ahead of my first year as a computer store owner. Content marketing, email marketing, social media marketing, branding, web and mobile design. If you have a small business or a large business, you probably hear these terms all the time in the context of things you need to be doing. But if you're like most business owners, you don't have the time or the manpower or the expertise to focus on those things. Marketing is crucial in today's business climate, but it can be overwhelming if you don't know much about it. That's why you should join forces with ROI Online. ROI believes your marketing should make you money. Their team of experts will partner with you to shape your company's marketing and culture. But ROI is more than a marketing agency. Think of them as your business development partner. They help tell your story so you connect with customers and get ahead of your competition. So become a partner, create a plan, and grow your business. To learn more about how ROI Online can position your business for the future, visit ROIOnline.com or follow them on Instagram or Facebook. ROI Online, leading the modern marketing movement. Okay, we're back with Ray Wilson of High Fidelity Records, hey. downtown on 6th Street. Uh, Ray, this is the part of the show I call 8 Straight. I'm cool. going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as the guest is to answer those. All right. If you don't, it'll be really awkward. So uh, <laughs> I would I would suggest providing some sort of answer. Okay. Uh, number one, you're uh, a record store owner. So yes. what is your favorite album of all time? I was terrified of that because... People will judge you regardless I, of what you say. Well, I actually don't care about them judging me. It's really about narrowing it down to a single album. I probably have a, a thousand that are my favorites. So if I could narrow it down, I think I could only do three. I could only narrow it down to Led Zeppelin IV, uh, Soul Cages by Sting, and Fleetwood Mac Rumors. That's the only thing that I could possibly narrow that down to. That's that's a pretty legit list. Though. Thanks. <laughs> what's um what's what's the coolest album you found in the collection? Um, it's a toss up between there was three unopened REM records. Wow. Uh, from the '90s, and those were very difficult to sell because I wanted to keep them myself. And then a absolutely near mint, even though that it was open, um, Cure uh, album that um, I just recently sold. It really wasn't up there very long, but that one was too. I, I sent a picture of that one to my wife, and she said, that's even hard for me to let you sell. Um, but we did. We sold it. So those were really, really cool. Oh, and a sealed uh, original Star Wars soundtrack from 1977. No, I actually have that. Star Wars album. Do you? Yeah, the double yes. record. Yes. It's not sealed, but I... Yeah, this one was sealed. Cool. I just about like died when I found it's it. It's somewhere here in this house. That's cool. Second question, what is your favorite place to eat in Amarillo? My favorite place to eat in Amarillo actually closed. It was called the Real Food Cafe. Right. And I'm Andy so, and T. Price yes, down on 6th Street. I miss that place and love those people so much. Um, I'm, I'm holding out for that next place that opens up that's mostly organic, all natural, gluten-free stuff on the menu. Um, there's some really great restaurants in Amarillo. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to downplay that, but that was my most favorite place. And they the have world. a booth at the community market, right? They do. Every uh, every Saturday when we go to the community market, we go by and 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 hug on and love on them, but I still can't go and eat lunch. That was that was our lunch, mine and my wife's lunch destination. Yeah. What does this area have too much of? <laughs> uh, this area has too many 
LCD televisions mounted throughout public places like restaurants and where you get your cars, tires done and that sort of thing. And slow drivers. That's what this area has too much of. Why do the TVs bother you? Um, you know, I I find myself and, and, and my wife and I, we talk about it regularly. We'll go and sit somewhere and we try to sit. We always try to find a table where we don't face the televisions. Um, we'll be there with just us trying to spend time together or maybe someone else. We always find ourselves as sort of like being drawn into that television. You know, Because that's another thing. When we do that, when we go out, the rules of phone stay in the pocket mm-hmm. or the purse or the jacket or whatever. Um, so we don't want to sit there on our phones. So we try so hard to not have screens so that we can have this real human connection with, with again, with my wife or maybe someone else that we're out with. Uh, and we just find ourselves being drawn into those screens. And it's a sporting event. I don't even know yeah. what sport it is. So stay and away I'm, from the sports bars for sure, where I, there are 50 screens. I, and we do have a lot of those too, a lot of sports bars. Yeah. What does this area not have enough of? You know, this area is very rich in people and, and opportunity. Um, and I really love this area. Again, I came back to this area purposefully. We need to be a little more open and a little more understanding. And that might be true everywhere. Um, but I would love, I, I see so many people. I went to uh, different Christian churches for about 10 years before I stopped going to church. And there's some amazingly loving and caring people that go to church homes in this community. And I also frequent a lot of the venues here, the bars and places like that where I play music or where I just like to go hang out at R&R Bar, Left Woods, The Golden Light. And there's some people that don't go to church that are just so loving and caring. Um, But both those two groups tend to be at odds with each other a lot. and Suspicious of each other even. uh, Suspicious and almost, almost at a point of hate might be a strong word, but in some instances. And if we just opened our minds and if we were to just seek to understand the others first and be a little bit more open to knowing that actually these two different groups have great hearts, they're just not applying that in a way that is that would enrich the community. It's a good answer. Thanks. How do you describe Amarillo when you're talking to outsiders? Um, usually the term windy and dry does enter the conversation, but I always say, this is a place of amazing people. I mean, amazing, hearty, hardworking, again, caring and loving, even though often misguided. <laughs> um, really great people. You're going to, you're going to, someone's going to smile at you in a day as often as they cut you off in traffic. You're a musician. So I, this is the second time I've asked this question. Um, what is your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> can't choose one of your own oh oh okay <laughs> um oh my gosh anything george michael really yeah you don't you don't have a particular george michael no song? if i find it in the set list i'll sing it okay when was the last time you ate at the big texan um i think it's in the five or six year range uh my wife's family that's down in florida they'll come to town or her brother will come to town or something and that's kind of their they definitely want to go there so that's pretty much the only time we go there is when they're in town. Okay, and you typically perform in bars, but I want to ask, what's your favorite local coffee shop? So, see, that's I can't have a favorite there. Um, the 806 is just 
a great place. I love the atmosphere and the people and the menu there. Um, and that's your neighborhood down on sixth street. Sure. Sure. So I have to support them, but also, um, evocation Roman, uh, Leal is so passionate about his coffee and I just love that place too. So I can't choose between those two. And that concludes the eight straight questions. Ray, I like to close every episode by asking my guests to just endorse something. What is something that you would want people in Amarillo to know about that they may not be aware of? So I'd have to say that the first thing that comes to mind, uh, I know I keep answering multiple things, I'm sorry, but the first thing that comes to mind is Longwood Spoon Brewery um, over off of Western in uh, Western Business Park. What an amazing family that uh, own and operate that and amazing beer that comes out of that place. Um, they are, I love to travel to New Mexico and Colorado and drink craft beer um, and sample different things. And they are absolutely on par with any of those breweries in Colorado and in New Mexico. So that is a place that if you haven't been there, you've got to go. That's the first thing that that really comes to mind. They sell their beer at 575. They have it on tap at several places, and I think 575 is one of them. But they've got a little tap room right there Mm -hmm. with a few tables and you can go and sit and taste and try, and it's just it's just amazing. Ray Wilson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for it. having me, really. That concludes the episode. Uh, I want to say thanks to Ray Wilson for being this week's guest. If you want to find out more about High Fidelity Records, go to at High Fidelity Vinyl on Instagram, where Ray seriously does a great job promoting his products, showing you what records he has in stock. Um, he's, he's really... I'm super impressed with his Instagram. Um, You can also follow High Fidelity Records on Facebook. And I also want to say thanks again to ROI Online for sponsoring this podcast week after week after week. I really appreciate um, how they are enabling me to do this for Amarillo. Follow Hey Amarillo at Hey Amarillo on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. We also are on Instagram at this point. Look for Hey Amarillo Podcast on Instagram. And uh, leave a review on iTunes. Leave a review on Facebook. Tell your friends about the show. This helps other people find uh, a local podcast that interviews local people. Thank you for listening. My name is Jason Boyette. I'll see you next week.